Let's pray as we, we begin our time. Lord, uh, we are thankful to be here this morning. We're thankful to be reminded of, of someone like Bill Rogers who, uh, who loved you and loved the children of this church. And God, we pray that uh, we would follow that example. Uh, as we are here this morning, may we come to love you more. May we see our responsibility to live out our faith in Jesus Christ in a way that it impacts people. And God, we, uh, we trust this morning as we study your scripture that you will drive it deep into our hearts, that you would open our minds and our eyes to understand and to see what you would have us to learn this morning. Make us very different, Lord, we pray. Uh, Lord, as, as Danny has, uh, has blessed us with song, may, Lord, may we today see, uh, see you in the valley. See your hope, see your peace, see, Lord, the blessing that is coming for those who believe in Jesus Christ, the blessing of heaven and life eternal. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I was a history major in college, as some of you know, which means that uh, really I chose the path of least resistance. That was really my, my choice of major. I hate to admit it, but I, I, I was a math major for about two weeks. And I realized the first class you have to take as a math major is calculus. And I went to a calculus class, and it had been a couple of years since high school, which wasn't long, but there I was with a bunch of freshmen, and I was uh, sort of between my sophomore and junior years, and I was the dumbest guy in the class. I mean, it was just hands down. They, I just I didn't know anything. And I thought, you know, I kind of enjoy math, but it's, it's obvious God has spoken, and I will not be a math major. And by that time in my college career, I'd already taken enough courses to where I sort of, it made sense to be a history major. I'd taken social studies, and I thought, well, I want to graduate sometime, you know, this decade, so I better, I better you know, choose something. So anyway, in, in choosing history, I got to take a lot of courses that I wanted to take, but you know, you still have to take those general education courses, gen ed. And on my gen ed requirement, as I'm sure it still is for those students at Murray State, were two science courses. Science and I are kind of like me and math. We just, you know, it just didn't, it didn't really work. And so I took, uh, I, I remember taking astronomy. I thought, you know, I can, I can do astronomy. You know, I can't, chemistry, there's, there's two, you know, they put letters and numbers together instead. It just doesn't work in my mind. And, and I had to take biology. I just kind of fought my way through that. But I thought, you know, astronomy, not astrology, all right, nobody freak out, but astronomy. I took astronomy and I thought, yeah, I can, I can pick out where some things are in the sky. Through that, uh, I, I came to, maybe some of you do as well, just sort of have a, a great interest um, in, in what, what we see in the sky. You know, I, I've been fascinated the last few weeks. I don't know if you've been able to, uh, to track them, but, uh, but Jupiter and Venus have been, have been visible in the sky. And they sort of, uh, up until last night, they've been kind of tracking with the moon just a little bit. But the moon was, was a little later than them last night. And and uh, I tell you, living across the street here in the Parsonage, it, it gets, of course, very dark at night, not a lot of lights around. I go in the backyard, and you just see all the stars. And, uh, you know, I try to make for my kids, like, I actually know what I'm talking about when I look up. I'm like, you know, look at this, and I really have no clue what I'm saying. <laughs> you know, it was just one astronomy class. Um, but, they, you know, they're young. They don't know, so don't tell them. But uh, anyway, uh, but I, I love it. I, you know, I think, it's, I think it's fascinating to look into the sky and and you know what's interesting is if you can get to a very a, a place outside that's very dark and, and a very clear night with no moon. Now, the key is to, to not have the moon there because, of course, the moon kind of with its light will drown it out. But you can see stars that you thought, wow, where did those come from? 
I didn't, I didn't even know that, that you could see those. And then you, you, you focus on one part of the sky, and, and you know how it is in your eyes, a, a, another part sort of becomes more visible. And then you, you shift your eyes around and you turn, and it just seems like it's never-ending, which, of course, it is never-ending. Um, what, I, what I find fascinating is, you know, you, you, you can't see all of the stars that are there, but they're, they're all there. Um, there are more there than you can actually see. There are more there than you'll ever be able to fully see with your, with your eyes, and yet they're all there. The universe is there, but it's bigger than you can see. And I think of that when it comes to the, the scripture that we'll look at this morning, that the plan of God is a lot like that. It's bigger than you can see. You can, you can study it, you can look at it, kind of like looking at the night sky, but there's always more to it than you can actually see. It's amazing, it's wonderful, it's beautiful, but it's bigger than you can see. We can see part of it. We have, we have the plan of God as far as God has revealed it here in the Scripture. We can look at our own lives and the lives of others and we see the plan of God unfold, but it's still bigger than we can see. It's kind of like looking into the night sky. You can only see so much of it. It's wonderful and it's beautiful, but there's always more to it than you can see. That's what we'll see in the Scriptures today, and it's what we need to remember uh, as we leave here, that God has a bigger plan than you can see. Uh, this whole series that we've been in on the life of Joseph, it will actually end next week. And, and I'm a little sad to say goodbye to Joseph next week because I, I feel like there's so much that, that we have learned and could learn uh, if we were to spend much more time on it. But, but Joseph has taught us so many things. And I'll be honest with you, when I sat down to plan this series, I, I tried to put it in a little box. Eight Ways God Builds Your Character. And if you've noticed, I haven't referred to that title at all. It's on, it's on your bulletin and it's on the screen, but I just kind of threw that out the window because I realized that this was, this was bigger than some nice little eight-message you know, series that I could fit in. And It's really not about building your character, but about being completely transformed, coming to know the Lord in a, in a more unique and deeper way. And, and so we've seen Joseph in his life. From the very beginning in chapter 37 of Genesis, we've seen him hated by his brothers. We've seen him rejected and thrown into to a pit and sold into slavery. We've seen him have to travel to Egypt as a slave and rise to prominence in the, the master's house and then be falsely accused of rape and thrown into prison for a crime he didn't commit and rise to prominence there in the prison only to encounter two of Pharaoh's servants, the king of the land, to be forgotten by them. Seemingly have no hope. And then all of a sudden, Pharaoh has a dream, as we saw a few weeks ago. And Joseph is remembered. And he comes to stand before the king and lays out for Pharaoh what's going to happen as a result of the dreams that he has had. Here's what God is going to do, he says. And then we see the plan of God begin to unfold a little bit more along the way. Joseph's been through a lot of ups and downs. And maybe you can relate. Maybe you haven't been sold into slavery recently, but you know what abandonment and rejection is like. Maybe you haven't been accused of a crime and thrown into prison, but you know what it's like to have people talk behind your back and say things about you that aren't true. Maybe you've never stood before the king of the land. You've never been in the Oval Office of the President of the United States, but, but you know what it's like to be tempted to change your tune a little bit when you're around a person of influence. And that's the story of Joseph, what we've been seeing so far. 
This morning, I want to focus on a passage of Scripture that I honestly think I forgot to put on the screen, so I hope you'll turn there with me. In Genesis chapter 49, Genesis 49, beginning in verse 22. Now, just so you know, we fast-forwarded a little bit from where we were last week. Last week, we ended with, uh, with a reconciliation of Joseph's brothers, his chance for revenge, and we talked about how we need to give God room to convict, give them room to repent, uh, give ourselves room to feel, give Satan no room at all when it comes to, to our desire maybe for revenge on those who have hurt us or those who have caused us harm. And, and what, we'll, what we'll see as we trace this story, that was in chapter 45. Now we're starting this morning in chapter 49. You know there's quite a bit of the story that's in between those two passages. But I, I, I'll catch you up to speed as we go along. But I want to start here in chapter 49 because where we pick up the story is where Jacob, Joseph's dad, the father of the twelve sons, is giving a blessing to each of the sons, or at least pronouncing something on them that he is saying about them, sort of his last words to his sons before he will be, as the Bible says, gathered to his, his fathers. He's going to die and go on, and he's saying a brief word to each of them. Now, if you know Joseph's brothers, of course, most of them, uh, for the majority of their lives, were pretty rotten characters. So some of the things that, that Jacob, if you read this, well, I have to say about them, you think, why would a dad say that to his son? Well, he's just speaking the truth. That's <laughs> all he's doing. And yet he gets to Joseph. And Joseph, of course, was, was his favored son. Uh, the, the firstborn to his favorite wife, Rachel. Now, that sounds a little funny in 21st century America, but the guy had more than one wife, all right? And so, so his favorite, the one that he loved the most, was a lady named Rachel who had Joseph and then Benjamin. Joseph was the firstborn of his favorite uh, wife And so here Jacob will say to Joseph some things about him. In verse 22 of chapter 49, Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine beside a spring. Its branches climb over the wall. The archers attacked him, shot at him, and were hostile toward him. Yet his bow remained steady, and his strong arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. By the name of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, by the God of your father who helps you, and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of the heavens above, blessings of the deep that lies below, and blessings of the breasts and the womb. The blessings of your father excel the blessings of my ancestors and the bounty of eternal hills. May they rest on the head of Joseph, on the crown of the prince of his brothers." Imagine if you're Joseph for just a second, the journey that has brought you to this point. You had a couple of dreams in chapter 37. Dreams that your family would bow before you, that you would indeed be the prince <laughs> that everyone bows down to. And yet everything seems to get in the way. All the junk and hardship that you face. And then you get to the point where you're reunited several years later with your father who loved you so much and protected you. And you've been separated from him. And this is what he says to you. Well, how amazing would that moment be for Joseph to hear his dad. Hear his dad say these things about him. We get an idea from this that Joseph came through it all victoriously. That yes, he faced an incredible amount of hardship. But God's plan was bigger than he could see. God's plan, of course, as I mentioned, is certainly larger and and more expansive than any of us can see. We're going to look this morning at and sort of trace the plan of God as it unfolds in the life of Joseph that we have recorded in the Scripture. And then we'll see how are we to respond to the truth that God's plan is bigger than you and I can see. 
I want to trace just briefly the, the, uh, the history of God's plan here in Genesis chapter 37 to 50. It actually uh, goes back to Genesis chapter 12. So once you hold your place in, in chapter 49, flip back to chapter 12. All right, so back to the left just a little bit. Back to chapter 12, hold your place there. God's plan involves several things in and through Joseph. One of the first things that, that we'll see was that God's plan uh, through Joseph was to preserve the family of Jacob, which later became the nation of Israel. So, so if, you're, if you're taking a note in your Bible somewhere, you want to jot this down, just make a note that God's plan, bigger than Joseph could see, involved preserving his family, which would become the nation of Israel. That, that's part of his plan. Look in chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, who of course later became Abraham, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. Now here's God talking to Abraham. I will make you into what? A great nation. Now at this point, does Abraham have any children? Those of you that are, that are Bible historians, anybody know how many kids he's got at this point? None. Keep that in mind. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, if this was to a 22-year-old guy, you might think, wow, what a graduation present. This guy's getting out of college. Look what kind of mission God sends him on. Incredible. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left. The promise... That Almost seems laughable that a 75-year-old man, even during this ancient time, would be made into a great nation. At this time, he has no children, and yet God is going to be faithful to that promise, even as we'll see through the life of Joseph. I will make you into a great nation. We see in chapters 37 to 50 threats to that promise at every turn. We see the favoritism that Jacob had toward his son Joseph which created turmoil in the family, and his other brothers hated him because of that. There's a threat to the promise, because what they do because of their hatred is to try to get rid of Joseph. It's almost as if the family is disintegrating before it even has a chance to become a great nation. It's falling apart. They hate each other. There's infighting and turmoil, a threat to the promise, jealousy and hatred, instead of this blessing that God had talked about. Do you see the difference? Judah, in chapter 38, will commit a major sin that seems to threaten the family. And then we pick it up in chapter 39, where Joseph is going to be imprisoned and later forgotten. Then, we see in chapter 46 through 49, there's great famine in the land, which threatens the nation of Israel, the family of Jacob, because the famine extended not just to Egypt, but also to where they were in the land of Canaan. And yet, what's amazing if you trace it is that Joseph's rejection, Joseph's slavery, his imprisonment, his abandonment, his being forgotten by everyone was simply God moving him to a point to where through him God could preserve the family because he knew the famine was coming. So God positions Joseph in such a way, the plan of God unfolds, now Joseph has the opportunity to preserve the family. What happens as the story unfolds is that the stars in the night sky become a little more visible. We have the benefit of knowing the whole story, but you see the reconciliation of the brothers that we saw last week. Then you get to the point in Genesis 
you're turning with me, Genesis chapter 46. Remember Genesis 12, turn to Genesis 46. Israel, this is Jacob, is invited to come to, to Egypt. In verse 2, that night God spoke to Israel in a vision. Jacob, Jacob, he said, and Jacob replied, here I am. God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for what? I will make you a great nation there. You see the continuation of the promise? God's plan unfolding. He had preserved the family and will build the nation. I will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you back. Joseph will put his hands on your eyes. You'll receive blessing and comfort. Part of God's plan was to preserve the family. So Jacob goes to Egypt. Eventually, they're given the best land that Egypt has to offer, the land of Goshen, where the family will settle. And then if you turn in Genesis chapter 47, verse 27, just tracing the promise here of God preserving the family and how he did this through, jo through Joseph, Israel settled of Egypt in the land of Goshen. They acquired property in it and became fruitful and very numerous. Here's, I will make you into a great nation. At this point, there are about 70 of them. And then turn to the first chapter of Exodus. If you've never read the Bible to, to see the promises fulfilled of God, then I hope this is, this is enlightening to you. Exodus chapter 1, verse 5. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful, increasing rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. What has God done from Genesis chapter 12 to Exodus chapter 1? I will make you into a great nation. And he did it through the hardship that Joseph had faced. Through Joseph's trials, God preserves the family and eventually builds it into a great nation. God had a bigger plan than Joseph could see. I really believe that you and I, you may never know how your family can be impacted even through all the junk that you face. Even through all the hardship that you endure, how the people in your family, whether they're immediate or extended, can see Jesus lived out in you in such a way that God uses that to convict them, to draw them to himself and to save them. How you trust Jesus through all of the stuff you face really does matter. Sometimes I think in my own life, and maybe you can relate, that I just figure, well, I'm just going through whatever, and I just need to, need to deal with it. I just got to get through this. And I sometimes forget that, you know what, the number one thing that I need to do in all of this is to trust Jesus. To trust Him. Because you never know how my children, all four of them, might be impacted through whatever dad and mom face. You never know how God can use that. Your, your pain, your loss, your grief, even harsh treatment, loss of a job, whatever it may be, financial hardship, betrayal, rejection, your illnesses, your testing in life, it may all be a part of God's plan to impact your family. I had the opportunity this week to visit with a, a dear family in our church, going through a very difficult time, and, and was able to read uh, a card that was sent to this particular family from an extended family member who has watched from a distance them going through this extreme trial. 
And what was interesting was that the card talked about the person, the author of the note. It talked about their salvation and how God had used these circumstances to open her eyes. This family dealing with a hardship is likely not to, to experience great victory on this side. Because it will likely end in a death. But God has used that to impact extended family in a way that they could have never seen before. God has a bigger plan than you can see. For Joseph, it was to preserve his family and build the nation. For you, it may be someone in your family that they watch you go through something and still trust in Jesus, and God uses that in a spectacular way. God used it to preserve the family. He also uses... What Joseph goes through, God's plan also included the rescue of the nation of Egypt. You want to make a note of that. Genesis chapter 47, verse 13. There was no food in that entire region, for the famine was very severe. Now, this is a major threat to the nation. Joseph, of course, living in Egypt. He's the second in power at this point. And there's famine in all the land of Egypt. So Joseph has devised a plan, and he it out in verses 14 to 26 of chapter 47. First thing he does is he sells all the grain that they had, they had accumulated during the seven years of great harvest. He sells grain to the people. So he takes their money. Eventually they run out of money and they come back to him and say, what should we do? After all the money's gone, he trades grain for their livestock. And so they accumulate horses and sheep and cattle and donkeys and all these things and and that covered them for about a year. They had enough grain to survive for about a year. And then that runs out. They come back to Joseph again and they say, Look, all of our money is gone. All of our livestock is gone. All we have are ourselves and our land. So please, let us trade our land and ourselves for food. Joseph had them trade their land and then moved all the people to cities. All the land becomes Pharaoh's and then the people work the land and then have to give one-fifth of everything that they raise back to Pharaoh. But in chapter 47, verse 25, we see that though this may be sort of an, a unique plan, a little bit different than maybe you would approve of in today's world, I don't know. They say to him in verse 25 of chapter 47, you saved our lives. We have found favor in our Lord's eyes and will be Pharaoh's slaves. Joseph, through the wisdom of God living in and through him, saves and rescues the nation of Egypt. No one starves. Pharaoh is blessed. He's made richer. Now he has all the money, the livestock, the cattle, the land, everything. You go back to Genesis chapter 12, and you remember God said, I will make you into a great nation. So he uses Joseph to preserve the family and build the nation. He also says, I will make you a blessing. You, you will be a blessing. You look at chapter 47, verse 25. You have saved our lives. Do you see how God is continuing to fulfill the original promise that he gave to Abraham even through Joseph's struggles, even through the hardship? You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Through Joseph's hardship, God blessed those Joseph never even imagined encountering. As a 17-year-old kid in chapter 37, Joseph never anticipated winding up as the prime minister of Egypt. Never. Never imagined having to devise a plan to rescue that entire nation. Never imagined having the people of Egypt say to him, you've saved our lives, thank you so much. 
And yet God used him, even through all that junk, to be a blessing to people he never imagined encountering. It's amazing to see how God does that. It really, it's amazing. His plan is bigger than you and I can see. And it may just involve taking you and getting you to a place and a position where, where you can be a channel of His grace to other people. Maybe people that you've not even met. So when your life seems to take a, a detour or a dead end, don't be surprised if God already has someone there waiting for you to minister His grace to, for you to impact. I came across an article in the Western Recorder. I don't know if you know what the Western Recorder is, but it's our, our state Baptist newspaper. And uh, it comes out weekly, and, and, and they, they've highlighted in the most recent issue a missionary profile. They've got a couple here that they're highlighting for North American missions with the Annie Armstrong uh, North American missions offering coming up. Okay? So I, I, I want to read you a little bit of this because it, it illustrates this point that, that God used J, uh, Joseph to rescue the nation of, of Egypt people he never imagined encountering, and how he can use us to do the very same thing. If Liam McGibbon, McGibbon rather, had been tumor-free, you might not be reading about his parents this week. They probably never would have made it to Hamilton, Ontario, and certainly not as miraculously. For one, Jason and Kimberly McGibbon didn't really imagine themselves as church planters. At least that's what they'll tell you. And two, they weren't looking to leave their life in Milton, a suburb of Toronto was where Jason served as worship leader at the Sanctuary Church and moved to the other side of Lake Ontario. Their story began three years ago in a pediatrician's office. Little eight-year-old Liam was complaining of headaches. Migraines run in the family, so they assumed the best. When Kimberly heard that it was much more serious, a parent's worst nightmare materialized before their eyes. I remember when I found out about Liam and I thought, I can't breathe. And the room got very cold, Kimberly recalled. A tumor was growing in the middle of Liam's brain. Two surgeries and several weeks passed. Liam, now 11 and recovered, regaining his faculties and vital signs, improved during that time. And God opened Jason and Kimberly's eyes to the needs of those around them and shifted their hearts. Looking around the waiting room, the couple could see desperate loneliness across other parents' faces. As we waited, we saw people sitting there by themselves in the hardest times of their lives. We wondered how they made it through. We heard so many stories from other parents whose lives were rocked by illness. They had no real hope outside of medicine and science. In the end... Jason and Kimberly couldn't get away from the idea of true community, which they had experienced with church members praying for them, visiting with them, and practically camping out at the hospital with them. And then there were these parents in Hamilton who had no Christian presence, no church family to walk with them during their own difficult journeys. To leave the area without a gospel presence seemed out of the question, they said. Later they would plant a church there and are continuing to minister. And they say this in closing. One of the things we know is that God called us to do this. We just know God is there and God works. Even when you seem like you're up against the biggest, thickest brick wall, it's then that you see God work. That may seem distant to you because it's in Canada. But these folks are just like us encountering things every day that seem to devastate, 
that seem to detour, that seem to absolutely destroy everything in your life, or you see the potential for that, and yet they find what God was doing all along. Joseph was led to Egypt to rescue that nation and impact and affect people he never imagined encountering. Don't be surprised if God does the same in your life. God's plan was not only about Joseph preserving the family and rescuing the nation, but also a great transformation inside of Joseph himself. Go back to chapter 49. Those verses that we read at the beginning. Maybe you want to underline a a few of these words that Jacob says to Joseph, and this is what Joseph is at, at the end of this journey. He is a fruitful vine. Just talking about the benefit that he is to both himself and to others. A fruitful vine beside a spring. It talks about a spring that's out in the wilderness. Just water in the middle of the desert. That's Joseph. Branches over the wall. That His blessing through his life extended over the wall, even to the Egyptians. The archers attacked him, his father says. These archers are literally known as men of arrows. Over and over, these volleys of attack come. Joseph is attacked on all sides in all different ways. His brothers... Potiphar's wife, even Potiphar himself, the cupbearer, the baker who forgot him. They're hostile toward him. They shoot at him for their words and actions. Bitterness just flows from them. I'm not an outdoorsman in any way. Some of you know that. Um, I'm not at all. But but you've seen, and I've seen enough of those Robin Hood-type movies uh, to know what this volley of arrows is like. It's just one after another after another. And yet, the Bible says, his bow remains steady. Joseph holds on. He never wavers. It's as if his hands never start shaking, and he, and he, he sort of freaks out on the battlefield. He never does that. He's, he's firmly held, strengthened, and given stamina in the midst of that onslaught. It never stops. He doesn't get a break. But his arms are made agile, it says, lively and graceful and strong receiving the power of God in his hands under intense pressure, intense fire. He's helped, it says. He's blessed from above, sort of like the rain would fall. He's blessed from below, like the rivers would flood to give vegetation in the land. And then Jacob says there's more blessing to come. This is just a preview of the blessing. The blessing that Joseph would help facilitate would outlive him, would outlive him and extend even to his descendants. And also, of course, in eternity, he would and still does experience blessing. Joseph goes from being despised, being hated, being dispensable, able to be gotten rid of, to being beloved and exalted. And very, very important. He's prospered. He's protected. He's blessed. His family is affected because of this. The nation is affected and he is transformed. Don't assume And hear me on this, don't assume that rejection or hatred or abandonment or humiliation or failure or any hardship in life is necessarily the punishment or the disfavor of God in your life. Don't assume that. It could be that as you read the story of Joseph, you recognize in your life that it's those things that God is using as preparation and as transformative in your life as he unfolds his plan 
which is bigger than you can see. What do you do? What do you do when you face what Joseph has faced? When you understand that God's plan is bigger than you can see? What are some things you can do? I want you to look in chapter 49, verses 24 and 25, and I want to to go exactly as the scripture goes and just write down some things that Jacob says to Joseph that are some great pieces of advice and some steps we can take. First, hold the hands of the mighty one. He says, yet his bow remained steady and his strong arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. Hold the hands of the mighty one. This talks about God's power to save Joseph's power during attack came from the Lord. This reveals Joseph is not operating on his own strength and his own power because he surely would have been defeated as all of us are when we, when we operate apart from God. But he, he notes that God is the source of his strength. God is the one who energized his hands to remain steady during those attacks. You and I can easily and readily admit that we are weak and we are vulnerable. And we fail over and over and over. And you'll continue, just so you know, to fail over and over and over if the only hands that you use are your own. But when your hands are enveloped and infused by the Mighty One, God Himself, then and only then can you remain steady during the volley of attack that comes. Only then can you remain victorious and not be defeated by all that comes your way. All of our strength for resisting temptation, for standing up under any affliction, any attack that we may face, all that comes from God. The Bible says in the New Testament, His grace is sufficient and His power is perfected. It's at its best in our weakness. Secondly, Follow the shepherd. His strong arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob by the name of the shepherd. Shepherd uh, terminology and imagery in the Bible, of course, talks about divine protection, about, uh, about the relationship that God has with his children, his sheep. Psalm 23, of course, is the classic text, and and. And maybe you'd, 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 you'd mark that and put it as a cross-reference there and go and read Psalm 23 again to understand the, the relationship that the shepherd has with his sheep of guiding and protecting and of saving and gathering together and leading to proper nourishment and giving rest highlights the care and the compassion of this divine shepherd in our lives. If you are tempted to worry, to fret, and to wring your hands... <laughs> to wonder what's going to happen next. Follow the shepherd who Psalm 23 says leads you beside quiet waters, who restores your soul, who prepares a table, a buffet, August moon, sirloin stockade, whichever is your favorite. There it is, laid out before you. It says in the presence of your enemies. You sit down, you eat a meal in their face. Because the Lord is your shepherd, there is nothing that you lack. I shall not want. Follow the shepherd. Thirdly, 
Build on the rock of Israel. Build on the rock of Israel. Now, we've heard the terminology before, God is the rock. But I, I think sometimes, I think, what we do is we confuse this, and God sort of looks like this kind of rock to us. This was our pet rock. You ever had a pet rock when you were a kid? Rocky? God sits. He's kind of interesting looking. Kind of sparkles a little bit. Some neat little things on there. That's a unique rock. And there he sits. And occasionally we'll come over and we'll talk to our pet rock. We kind of feel silly doing that because the rock doesn't seem to talk back to us very much. But there God sits as our little pet rock. Yeah, I know God's there and well, he never moves. There he is, and I know I just get, you know, I'm the one who gets distance. So let me come next to the pet rock and touch it a little bit for some good luck. When Jacob says to Joseph, the rock of Israel, he's not talking about a pet rock. He's talking about a rock that juts out of the ground like a mountain with places where God's children can go and hide not because they're so timid and fearful of what might happen, but because God has said, come to me and I'll protect you. They go there because found inside the rock of Israel are springs of water that you need in the dry parts of your life. They go to God because there is refreshment in the rock of Israel. There's shade from all the heat that you face in your life. And there is a defensible position from which you can gain strength and be ready for the battle. God must not be in your life a pet rock, but the rock of Israel that you build your life upon. If you find today that he is your pet rock, you've got it all wrong. The good news is that he invites you to build your life on the rock, not to carry around a pet rock. Jacob would tell Joseph, the rock of Israel has protected you. Build your life on him. Fourthly, trust the God of your fathers. Trust the God of your fathers. God had made a promise to Abraham. He'd entered the covenant with him. And God was faithful, as I've shown you in the Scripture, every time to continue that promise, to make him into a great nation, to bless him. That spiritual heritage is not just for Joseph, but for us. Because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God that we serve. The God of our spiritual fathers. He is our God too. Who overcame every obstacle to those promises. The God who led Joseph through rejection and abandonment and pain. And times when there was no light at the end of the tunnel. That's our God too. He's always present. Always faithful the God of our fathers. Fifth, submit to the Almighty. Submit to the Almighty. He says, and by the Almighty who blesses you, that word there he uses is El Shaddai, helper. Actually has the same wording as the Hebrew word for the female breast, which talks about the infant who receives nourishment and care and love. The Almighty 
The one through whom blessing comes. Submit to the Almighty. Give your life completely to Him. Sixth, find out where God is working and get involved. I don't believe this one's on the screen. Find out where God is working and get involved. The plan of God is bigger than you can see, but, but get involved. Joseph knew God was up to something in Egypt. So what did he do? He devises a plan and he gets involved fulfilling the will of God for his life in that foreign land. He learned, leveraged what he could, his time, his talents. He didn't sit around. He didn't waste time. He didn't feel sorry for himself for all that had happened. He wasn't paralyzed in fear of what might happen. But he saw God at work in Egypt and he just got involved. And he said, if this is where God is working in my life now, that's where I'll leverage my time, my talents. That's where I'll do God's work. God's plan is bigger than you and I can see. We can either join him in what he is doing in our individual lives, in our church, in our community, or he'll move on. And he'll get his work accomplished through someone else. God was going to be faithful, understand this, to his promise that he made to Abraham with or without Joseph. The promise was not dependent upon Joseph. But Joseph is blessed because he figured out God is doing something. I'm getting involved. God uh, promised blessings to Joseph's family. Blessings for them then and blessings to come. We know that that Joseph also was sort of a preview of Jesus Christ. That he faced hardship. He faced the hatred of those to whom he was sent. He comes out of it victoriously. Jesus, of course, faced the incredible hardship of enduring the cross. But he did it. Out of his love for us, his obedience to the Father, and his desire to save the world. Joseph sort of previews that. Giving us an idea that that the Messiah would, would face these same things. His victory, Joseph's victory in the midst of his hardship, just a shadow of the victory that Jesus won on the cross for us. Through the Savior, we get the blessing of eternal life, forgiveness for our sin, only received through faith and submission to Him. In Him, we have these blessings that Jacob talked about, these eternal blessings that are yet to come, blessings of hope and victory, the power to overcome our circumstances, the ability to change the direction of our lives only through Jesus Christ. In Him is transformation. In Him is hope and love and forgiveness and acceptance. In Him and only in Him can you begin to see the plan of God unfold for your life. Only He can make you into a fruitful vine. Only He can speak these words. You'll be a branches. You'll be a vine with branches climbing over the wall. And when the archers attack, shoot at you and hostile to you, your bow can remain steady, your hands strong only because of Jesus Christ. He is the mighty one. He is the shepherd. He is the rock of Israel. He is the God of your fathers. He is the almighty. This morning, you may be facing incredible hardship. The answer is not trying harder or being more positive, or just sticking it out until the storm passes. It's not the answer. The answer, and you may find it a cliche, but the answer is Jesus Christ and Him alone. 
him alone. So will you trust him this morning? The mighty one, the shepherd, the rock of Israel, the almighty, the God of your fathers. You can't see the stars that are all there at night. And you can't see all of God's plan. But praise God that his plan included Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. Trust him today, no matter where you are. Let's pray together. In the quiet moment that you have, you may have no idea what God's plan for your life involves, but will you submit to him today? Will you trust Jesus with your life today? Maybe for the very first time you'd say, Lord, I know that you died for me and I receive your salvation by faith and I submit my life to you. Confess my sin which required you to die and I give you my life. Or maybe as a continuing, ongoing maturity with Jesus Christ, you'd say, I tell you what, again today, Lord, I submit. I may not be able to see the fullness of your plan, just like I can't see all the stars at night, but I trust you. Trust that God is good and his plan, even though it's bigger than you can see, is to bless you. Heavenly Father, help us today. Our hearts are hurting. They may be heavy. We may struggle to trust you this morning, but please help us. Thank you that you are in control and that you love us and that you sent Jesus to prove it. May we trust you this morning. In his name we pray.